So maybe once or twice a year, a new puzzle will show up on the coffee table in my living room. And whoever's around can just kind of come in and put a few pieces in as they please. And some nights are a little bit more intense than others. But before I get too much into that, how many of you would say you're puzzle people? Any puzzle people in the room? Just a quick show of hands. So good news, if you raised your hand, what I learned this week is that people who do puzzles have a longer life expectancy. There's actually research on that. Uh, the downside is we all know what you're doing with your life. So <laughs> there is that. But whoever's done puzzles, you know what they're like. There's the joy of finding a piece, but there's also the frustration of not knowing where a piece goes. And regardless of the puzzle, it's like everyone has that one piece where it seems like it should be so obvious. The markings on it are just so clear. Like It should have a home, but it doesn't want to go to its home. You just can't find its home. And so what I do is probably what everybody does, unless you're a puzzle purist, maybe you don't do this. But I take the piece, and I look at the picture on the box, and I try to conclude, where does this piece go? So for example, if your puzzle looks like this, you know, you look at the box, you got your piece, and you kind of hold up your piece, and you figure out where the colors match and where it might belong. But even that, sometimes it just seems like there's one piece in every box of a puzzle that just doesn't have a place. And maybe you've wondered what I've wondered sometimes. What if there's no place for this piece? What if this piece is to a different picture? And what if I'm trying to fit something in that doesn't belong? More on that in just a moment. Today we are wrapping up a series called Asking for a Friend. What we're doing is we're looking at some of the common questions that everybody has about God and faith but questions that most of us are too intimidated or embarrassed to ask. And so in this series, Pastor Ben and I have been asking them for you. We've been asking them for a friend. And I hope that so far the questions we've looked at have been helpful. Today, as we wrap up the series, we're going to look at one final question that gets really deep, really quick. And to set it up, it kind of starts like this. So if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you probably are aware of a very specific promise made in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8. And we'll dig into this in just a moment. But the gist of Romans chapter 8 is that God says that in all things, in all things that happen to you, he will work things out for your good. In all things, God works together for the good of those who love him. But have you ever noticed that sometimes you're looking at some of those things that happen in your life, those little pieces that are just sent your way, and you're wondering, where does this fit in with the bigger picture of good? The big question we're going to ask today is, where's the good? Or more specifically, where's the good in that? Because every one of us eventually will be asking this question when certain things happen in life. Now, the easy thing is we could look at this on a global scale and say things like wars in Ukraine, loss of life, global instability, and inflation, and supply chain issues. You know, all these things we're wrestling with, where's the good 
in that. But I think the most troubling things are more on a local scene, things that hit closer to home. When pure evil can walk into a school and do unspoken of things, pastor, where's the good in that? When there's a really bad diagnosis that doesn't have a good prognosis, where's the good in that? When relationships are broken beyond repair and families are split, where's the good in that? See, Romans 8 says that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, but given enough time, you'll see a little piece of your life that pops up, or maybe for some of you, several pieces all together, and you're thinking, this does not make good happen. So what we want to do today, what I want to do today, is really two things. First of all, I want to dig into Romans chapter 8, where it makes this claim that God works all things together for your good, and I really want to get into the details of what God is actually promising in that verse. And then the second thing I want to do for today is take a step back and look at what God might be doing through the circumstances that you're facing in your life the things that you've looked at and said, I don't know if this can be good, the the things that maybe you've been sticking into a corner of your life because your faith doesn't know how to interpret it. And I want to show you from Scripture a few things where God has actually shown us the good that he can bring out of things that seem bad. So our main Scripture today is going to be Romans chapter 8, and then we'll look at three other sections fairly quickly and see three examples of the good that God can be doing, even through bad. And as we dig into Romans chapter 8, this is a bigger section than we really have time for in a message. But the, the, the gist of Romans chapter 8 is that Paul really takes you in this letter through, through a summary of everything Jesus did for you. Romans chapter 8 starts with this amazing declaration. Just lean in for just, just a moment. It declares that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus because in Christ Jesus, condemnation has already come and gone. So those who have faith in him are declared innocent, not guilty, children of God. And he starts with that declaration. But then Paul says, but as you live out that truth, it won't be easy. See, it's like we're groaning in this world. Whenever you try to receive and reflect the unconditional love of God, it's like you're cutting against the grain of what this world naturally shows. So Paul says, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be troubles and hardships. But then he gets to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where he lays out this promise. He says, even though we have so many hardships, so many troubles, here's what we know. We know that in all things, God works for the good. This was not a, we hope that somehow God will arrange it to make it okay. But Paul says, we know, we declare that all the pieces of your life, the good ones and the bad ones, God will arrange them all so that the end picture is good. And you might think, well, how can Paul guarantee that for for everybody? 
Like he wasn't just addressing a few people in Rome that he was writing this letter to, but he says, this is a truth for all who are in Christ Jesus. God will work all things together for good. How can he say that? Well, it's actually because of what in the English comes next. And I say in the English because when Paul originally wrote this in Greek, he started this sentence differently. We rearranged the word order a bit in English to make it proper grammar and to make it flow well, but here's what Paul actually began the sentence with. These words, he said, we know that of those who love God, his emphasis isn't on all things and how they turn out for good, but he says, okay, we know that for all those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose, that when it comes to those who are in Christ Jesus and those who are reflecting his love, we know that God will work all things out for good. So then he helps us put this all together. And if I'm losing you, just sit tight for a moment. We know, um, Paul's taking us through this kind of long line of thought, but it actually comes back full circle. We know all things will turn out for good because, because he has called us according to his purpose. And then he goes on to explain. Okay, so those God foreknew, like he knew you before you were born. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. He decided your destination before you took your first step. That's pretty cool. He foreknew you. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. He said, you know what? They're not even alive yet, but I've decided, I know that the end game, the big picture is that I will see them as I see my own son. I will see them as perfect and holy and blameless. That's the picture. That's the puzzle picture. I know for them that they're going to be going day by day, picking up these puzzle pieces and not knowing how they fit, but I know as the grand creator what the end picture will be. They will be conformed to be a reflection, a perfect mirror of who my son is, that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. It's like Jesus was just the first of many whom God would call sons and daughters. And then Paul goes on to say, all right, if that still doesn't excite you to know that God will work all things out for your good, let me tell you one more thing. Those he predestined, he also called. He didn't just plot out your map through life, but in real time, he showed it to you. His word is a lamp for your feet. He's guiding you. He's calling you. For some of you, this was through your baptism. For some of you, this was when you first heard this good news of who Jesus was. God reached your heart with the power of Jesus and his forgiveness. He called you. And then after he called you, he also justified you. He said, I declare you to be innocent. And that's the thing we celebrate each week as a church. And hopefully every day you get to celebrate this also, that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. But in Christ, he sees someone who is sinless. He declares you not guilty. He sees you just as if you've never sinned. And that's what God does for you in your journey. He not just justifies you, but then he also glorified you. He said, I'm not just wiping your slate clean and sending you on your way, but I am calling you. I am glorifying you with a greater purpose in your life. As I have loved you, so now I empower you to love one another. The glory of God shines through his people through the sacrificial, selfless love that we show. Now, before I go on, just pay attention to all the verb tenses. And for those of you 
If you don't know what a verb tense is, it means past, present, future. All these things are past tense. They have already happened. Paul doesn't say, well, I hope God accepts you into heaven someday. He doesn't say, I hope you can kind of make this up. I hope it all works out for you. Paul says, there's no need to doubt. If your life is a puzzle, we have the completed picture of what it will all make. You are right with God. You're loved by God. You have a purpose given by God. And the end picture is eternity with God. Now, how all the pieces fit together and how you get there, it's fun to see how God works that all out in the end. But what we know, what we know, we know that in all things, God works for the good. Paul declares that's what we know. So the the point of this is to challenge myself and to challenge you how we define good. And we'll wrap up with this thought at the end, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But what kind of good are you waiting for God to do? Because what we see in Romans chapter 8, the kind of good that God says he will work in your life is ultimately that end picture, good. Eternal life with him, good. And the incredible thing is that he can use little pieces that are not so good and put them together into a picture that ultimately leads to life with him. So number one, what we know, what we know is that God has made good inevitable. It is unavoidable. It will come. We've seen the finished picture. There's no doubt where God is leading you. You have been predestined. You have been called. You have been justified. You have been glorified. These things have all taken place. We know that all things work out together for eternal good. And yet we're still left with the question, if he can work out for eternal good, then shouldn't there be some evidence of it in the moment? And so what I want to do with the next few passages we look at is look at some biblical examples of how God can even not just turn things out for our eternal good, but how there can be momentary milestones of good that he leads us to throughout our life. And I have a big disclaimer here, so just don't miss this, don't miss this. Some of you have some things in your life, in your past or in your present, and you've said, my faith doesn't know what to do with this. I don't see the good in what God allowed happen. My disclaimer is that I do not have the ability to look at your specific circumstances and say without a shadow of a doubt, here's what God is doing. In scripture, we get some hints about what he can do. But a lot of the time, when we look at the the tragedies, the hardships that we go through, sometimes we see what God is up to. Sometimes we see the good, but not always. So I'm careful here, but at the same time, I want to speak with, with conviction where Scripture speaks with conviction. And the first thing I want to point to is in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter is addressing some Christians in the first century who have gone through some extremely tragic circumstances. Every day was a day of worry, a day of persecution. Their family members, their friends, the fellow Christians being arrested and put to death. And they were wondering, where's the good in this? 
And so as Peter writes a letter to them, he doesn't just say, stick with it, you'll have heaven someday. But Peter, in their tragic situation, he actually shows them what God is doing in the midst of their persecution and hardship. First of all, he reminds them of the great good news of Jesus and what an awesome thing it is to know that eternity is already set, good is inevitable. Then he also adds this. He says, in all this, in all this good news about Jesus, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. For some of them, this was going on for years, but he qualifies this as a little while. You may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. And here's where a normal person would write, I can't imagine what it must be like for you. But Peter knew exactly what it was like because he was facing the same kinds of trials. He says, you're facing all these things, but here's what I want you to remember. He goes on. These trials have come for a very specific purpose from God, so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That the genuineness of your faith, your faith which is of greater value than gold, even refined gold down to its most pure form, your faith is more valuable than that. In this moment, God was using the trials, the persecutions that these Christians were facing to make their faith in him stronger. So the first thing we see, when you're faced with hardship in life, what's the the one thing God might be doing? He might be redirecting you for where you lean. Sometimes in life, we can lean in a lot of places. I find my security. Where do you find your security? in your finances, in your family, in your friends, in your, the affirmation people give you? Where do you find your security? But where do you find your security when all those things are taken away and persecution hits? There are some seasons in life where the things that we depended on most are taken away from us, and it is not pleasant, but it does force us to reevaluate where we lean and where our trust is. And for those Christians in the first century, They had nowhere to lean, but the promise and the hope of what Jesus had set out for them. And so sometimes if you're going through an extreme hardship or even a religious persecution of some sort, almost all the time, this is something that you can find in your circumstance, that even though the persecution or the hardship itself is not good, not pleasant, God might be working good through it. It might be an opportunity this persecution or this hardships. Hardships might be an opportunity, number two, to to examine and exercise your faith. To really ask yourself, where is my trust and my hope? And then to exercise that trust in a whole new way. For example, it's one thing to know or to declare that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but it's another thing to live that out as you look into the casket of a loved one. In times of hardship, It forces you, it allows you to examine and exercise the faith that you have in God. And so that might be what God is doing when you're left wondering, where's the good in this? There's a second thing also. You see, when you go through specific hardships and struggles, it's not always easy in the moment. And sometimes you might even not find a lot of value in like how your faith is growing because your faith is staying the same way. 
But as we look at first, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, in one of his letters, he sheds light on another thing God might be doing when you're left wondering, where's the good? And Paul starts off this way. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father who embodies compassion. The God who embodies comfort. Like if you're looking for a source of compassion, a source of comfort, there is none greater than what your Father in heaven has for you. And he goes on. So here's what some of you are, and this is the interesting part. Paul was almost acknowledging there was some sort of tragedy in this congregation that he wanted to address. So here's what he says. The God who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the same comfort we ourselves receive from God. So I know some of you have gone through a life situation, a tragedy perhaps, that was really unique. And you noticed that as you went through that, that circumstance, something weird happened in your friends. Like friends who used to check in on you and say, how are you doing? Those friends suddenly didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to comfort you. They didn't know the questions to ask. And so instead of saying the wrong thing, they said nothing. They didn't know how to comfort you or be there for you. And it's nothing bad about them. It's just they didn't want to do the wrong thing. Here's the unique thing about hardships and tragedies in your life, that when you go through them, you get firsthand experience about what it feels like and what it is you really need and how comfort from other people actually comes across. Sometimes you don't really know how to comfort someone else in their hardship until you have gone through the exact same Thing. That's a, um, the, a third thing that we learn here from, from what God might be doing when it's hard to find the good. What you learn from your hardship may help someone else through theirs. Um, I've seen this several times in my ministry. <laughs> the, the ironic thing was in my early in my ministry, I was giving marriage advice, even though I'd only been married for a year or two. And so I was pretty shallow on the advice I could give and the way I could help some other people. I had great biblical principles, don't get me wrong, but the depth of my experience just wasn't there. Maybe you found that in your life too, whereas you try to connect with people and comfort them and they've got unique situations going on, you found your ability to connect just kind of lacking. But after you go through it yourself, you naturally reach out to the other people who have gone through the same thing. You say, I'm so sorry. I've been where you're at. How can I help? And when the comfort you've received from God sinks in, it allows you in an entirely new way to help others through their hardship. I've got one more thing. This one is from the book of Acts. And the Apostle Paul is on fire for God. He's uh, got his companions. He's been traveling around. And in Acts chapter 16, this is actually his second trip going around the Mediterranean area, sharing Jesus with anyone he could. Now, some of you are kind of intimidated sharing Jesus with a neighbor. He was just traveling city to city to city, just talking about Jesus with strangers he had never met before. So here's in Acts chapter 16, Paul had some great plans, and here's what, he, here's what he was doing. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Don't worry about the words for now. I'll show you a map in just a moment to show you kind of where things are. 
He traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, just this whole region, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. He wanted to go to the province of Asia, modern-day Turkey, but God said, no. So he bounced back and went to Galatia and Phrygia. Then when he came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus said no, would not allow them to. And I'm sure Paul was confused. He had this great plan to go to this area. That, um, there was a, a great city down in the, in the province of Asia where they could have gone to. Great trade routes. I mean, just lots of people that would really plant a seed for this good news of Jesus. He had his plans. He had his tickets. They were ready to go. But in one way or another, we're not sure how God said no. So here's a map to kind of just visualize this. So they were traveling up here, and here's the area of the province of Asia, kind of just northeast of Ephesus. They had wanted to go down in here, but instead they're bouncing around Galatia, bouncing around this upper area, even though they wanted to come down more to the south. And finally, when they couldn't go to the province of Asia, they ended up going up into Philippi. And before I tell you about Philippi, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever found something similar in your life where you had some good things you wanted to do? You had a great plan, a great godly picture that you were looking to assemble and work toward. But the opportunities just closed every time you tried to take a step. Um, quick story from, from my life. Back in 2006, I graduated from the seminary. And one of the parts of the graduation is we have a special service where they tell everyone, all the, all the graduates, where they are assigned for their first call, their first congregation. And I'll never forget, just waiting for my name to be called, they said, Matthew Ewert. Actually, I think they said Ewert. They pronounced it wrong. But they said, Matthew, whatever, your assignment is Brighton Mission, Brighton, Colorado. And I remember thinking, that's a funny name for a church, Brighton Mission. But what I quickly learned was that this church in Brighton was not a church yet. It was an idea. It was going to be a brand new mission start. And my job straight out of the seminary was to help plant this brand new church with the help of about 15 families. So right when we got there, um, Amy can, can affirm this, we were kind of guided with some great advice saying, don't think about this in terms of four or five years. Plan on being here for at least 10. So we bought a house. We dug in. 2006, we hit the ground running. We, we gathered the people together. I met with them all. We picked a church name. And back in 2006, we actually got a church website, which was unheard of back in 2006. But we had a website. We, we, we secured a location to worship. We had a couple years of services. Things were going well. We had over 60 people at a Christmas service. It was amazing. And then in 2009, with the economy recession, there was no more money from home missions to support all the missions, and so they had to cut back. And so they came to me and said, you're going to have to move. You're going to have to go somewhere else because we can't continue to pay for you here. And I remember thinking, okay, <laughs> where's the good in that? Long story short, because that door closed, we moved to Arizona, where I not only learned so much about ministry, but I also got to reconnect with some really amazing family members who watch this service. Love you guys. And if, I had, if we had stayed in Colorado for 10 years, the window to come here would have been closed also. 
it's interesting how when one door closes, a good door that would be a good thing to continue doing or a new thing that you want to do, it might close because God can see something in the future that's even better that would be missed if he didn't close this one today. So, going back to the map, what happened in Philippi? Well, because they went to Philippi, guess who they met? They met Lydia, and guess where Lydia was actually from? The province of Asia. They wanted to go to Asia initially to reach people there, but God said, no, I'm going to send you away from there to find someone from Asia. And this Lydia was a very successful person who ended up planting a church back in her hometown in the province of Asia. And the gospel had a foundation and a spread there that they never could have imagined if they had even walked through. It's interesting how when God closes an opportunity, when he closes a door, it's because he has something better in the future that's even better. And so some of you, if you're, if you're wrestling with this, well, where's the good in this? Why did God close this door? It may be because God has a greater plan in the future. So what we know, number four, what we know is that God may let a good plan fail to allow a greater plan to unfold. Good plans may fail to allow greater plans to unfold. I can't speak with certainty that every missed opportunity is God doing something greater, but it's possible because this is what we've seen from Scripture. So those are three quick things that when it comes to the where's the good situations in life, we see exact examples in Scripture of the good that God can be working in your life. And there's this one final thought I want to close with, and it's something that I really want you to be careful with when it comes to this entire situation. There will be times in life where you read Romans 8.28, God works together all things for good, and you're going to ask the question, where's the good in this? But the deeper question that we're kind of actually asking is, where's the good in that for me? Isn't it true that this question is often self-focused and self-driven? I lost my job. Where's the good in that for me? I lost, lost a lot of money. Where's the good in that for me? I lost an amazing opportunity. Where's the good in that for me? I got a really crummy diagnosis. I lost a really good friend. Things are just falling apart. Where is the good in this for me? And if that's the question you're asking, I would direct you to the question that Jesus asked. The night before he died, he was intently talking and praying to his Father in heaven, knowing that what was about to happen to him was not going to be good for him. So he said, Father, if there's another way that would be good for me, could we do that? But if not, that's okay. Father, I'm not here to demand good for me. I'm here to provide good for others. And so on the Friday that we call good, Jesus laid down his life so that he could forgive you of your sins so that he could set aside his own selfish desires, his own self-seeking ideas. He just laid it all aside and said, this is good for you. And so I gladly lay down my life. His phrase was this, Father, your will be done. 
your will be done. And sometimes this is what God just needs us to acknowledge as well. While many times in life you'll see how the bad things that happen to you, you'll see how God brings good from them. But sometimes the good that God brings through your hardship is for someone else. Sometimes the tears you have at the funeral of your loved one will serve the people around you more than you. Sometimes the hardships we face aren't about you. And so as you consider whatever is in your life, maybe that thing in the corner of your life that your, your faith hasn't really known how to handle, maybe if nothing else, would you just say, Father, I don't understand where the good is, and I don't see it from my perspective, but I know that you work all things out for good. Your will be done. Father, help me trust that the peace I'm wrestling with is just part of one big picture that ends with my eternity. So whether it's for my good or for someone else's, your will be done. I hope you can come back next week. We're we're totally going to switch up gears. This has been a little bit heavier, a little bit deeper into the um, looking through some some deep questions. Next week, we're going to talk about the amazing blessing of what happens with us as a church family as we look what we can do together in this ministry and how we can all be difference makers together. I hope you can come back for our special message next week as we get ready for summer also. Today, let's close with a prayer and then we'll have one final song. Dear Father in heaven, as, as we work through this topic today about where the good is in our lives, we acknowledge that we have very short sight and very little perspective compared to what you can see from your view. You see how all different things, not just in our life, the little pieces, but you see how all of our lives, not just as a church, but as a world, how each piece has an impact on the others around it. We trust that you will work all things out for good. That is a guarantee that you have made certain in Jesus. I pray that you would give us the wisdom when needed to see how the bad in our life is something that you are working out for good. Bless us with eyes to see what you are doing. And in those moments where we just cannot see because of our limited sight, give us the faith to just lean on you and say, Father, your will be done. May your will be done in our life and the lives around us. Continually keep our eyes focused on Jesus, who is the guarantee of good for all of us. And give us the faith to wrestle and find certainty in maybe the things from our past that our faith hasn't found a way to handle. Thank you for Jesus' forgiveness and for his life for his resurrection. It gives us our hope and our anchor for every day. Bless and keep all of us, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. Amen.